Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Film by Numbers from Outward Film Network. We are the film podcast in which the topic of discussion is dictated by the number of the episode. Thank you to all of you who have listened to our episodes thus far. We're on all the main podcast providers and do check out our back catalogue, which contains everything from film twists to James Bond to religion to football. My name is Phil Slatter and I'm joined by the one and only Mr. David Woods. Evening, David. Good evening, Phil. Thank you for inviting me into your chamber for this episode. He's given a little bit of a clue, uh, us two angry men, as to what we're going to be discussing <laughs> later on. You can search Outward on Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel, and our website is outwardfilmnetwork.com. We're all the way up to episode 12, and we have named this, as you may have guessed, 12 Angry Men. Primarily, we're going to be discussing chamber pieces, films that take place, by and large, in just one location. Now, the film that gives us our title was directed by Sidney Lumet in 1957. It tells the story of a jury sent out to deliberate the verdict of a seemingly open and shut murder case. They have to return a unanimous decision, and whilst 11 jurors are convinced of the defendant's guilt, juror number eight, played by Henry Fonda, is not so sure, and he feels the men should discuss the case further. It's a 92-minute film in which all but three minutes take place in the jury room. Originally a TV play before being adapted for theatre and then becoming the film that we all know. Since then, it's been remade, parodied and adapted several times. I first watched it a few years ago. I kept the DVD and watched it again recently. And my word, Dave, what a brilliant film it is. Absolutely. Uh, Such a great film. Sidney Lumet use the structure of the chamber piece regularly in his films, actually. If you think of Dog Day Afternoon, The Underseen, The Offence, which I highly recommend i think it might be sean connery's best performance ever and even serpico which certainly isn't a chamber piece but feels like it it feels very confined and i think this is because his protagonists are often trapped by a sense of displacement within the world they inhabit they're often very paranoid and they're outsiders um often railing against a system of some kind Um, And in 12 Angry Men, Henry Fonda's character shows this by being the dissenting voice in the room. Uh, uh, All the other 11 have gone with a guilty verdict. He he has doubts over the accused's guilt. Uh, He also has doubts over the accused's innocence as well. But as we see this lack of confidence uh, dissipate as his arguments garner support from the other jurors, and he goes from being huddled away at the back of the room to commanding the space. Uh, The space itself in the jury's chambers seems to grow wider and more open as Fonda asserts himself. Um, It's it's a brilliant um, use of mise-en-scene to create this sense of growing space by Lume. And the film is about whether the purpose of the law is to determine guilt or innocence, or if it's fundamentally about giving people a fair hearing. And I think the film suggests through a fair hearing that the right decision has been made at the end of the film by, you know, spoiler alert, but the sunshine breaking out over the courthouse steps at the end and the heat that's been so oppressive throughout the film becomes life affirming. And of course, it's an American film. America's a country that has the death penalty. You do feel in this moment, 12 Angry Men's really a celebration of life at its heart. I think there's a real sense of ambiguity that exists throughout the film because you never actually find out whether the defendant is guilty or innocent. And that's not yeah. fundamentally what the film is is about. And it's like they do reach the right verdict given what they discuss, but it's just about reasonable doubt, isn't it? And it's just about, did he do it? Did he not do it? And there have been arguments that they actually reached the wrong conclusion I think it's just one of those films, there is there is so much to it. There's literally just 12 people in a room. That's it. And all the themes and all the motifs all come from the, the discussion that they have. 
I thought it was a film about the class system in America because the jury do pick apart the case fairly easily. And some people say, well, hang on, surely the uh, the jury, not the jury, the uh, lawyer should have done, the defendant's lawyer, but this is a youngster from the slums, so he can't afford uh, a richer lawyer who can pick it, pick it all apart in, in a way that needs to be done. And that's been contrasted with something like OJ Simpson, who had a lot of money and was able to put reasonable doubt into the jury's mind. And again, that another case that, has been picked apart over the years. Was he guilty? Was he not? Or just based on the case itself, there was reasonable doubt. So there's there's that element to it. I also really felt it was very um, relevant to today's society. Uh, we have people shout down opposing arguments instead of actually discussing the facts. And people are sort of tribalistically loyal to one side or another without actually picking things apart. And we see that very much so in politics. And one thing, one moment that really stuck out for me was when one person says, one of the jurors says, actually, I think he's not guilty. And another juror who's in the not guilty says, well, why do you think that? And he says, well, I just do. And he said, well, you need to explain it. You can't just say that. You, you know, And even though he's now come over to his way of thinking, he says, you can't just change your mind. You need to have some rationale behind it. And it's all about, there's one great line in it where one of the jurors says, I'm not loyal to one side or another. I just want to establish facts. And in this day and age, especially with social media, we don't get a lot of that. And it was really interesting watching a film from 1957, just so relevant to today's society. Yeah, I mean, opinions are merely that. They're opinions. They don't reflect a total truth. And balance is needed in everything uh, to reach the right conclusion, in my opinion. Um in its exploration of the application of the law, 12 Angry Men understands the idea of balance perfectly and therefore why an impartial, considered and fair judicial process is crucial in measuring the worth of a person's life. We see a lot in, in politics in America, you think you know who I'm talking about, where someone is accused of something and he's like, he's either being framed or he's innocent. It's And nobody actually just sits down and says, OK, let's actually look at the facts. Oh, he's, if he's found guilty, well, that's because he's been framed. If he's found innocent, that's actually proof that he's innocent. And it, again, there's no logical sitting down and actually establishing fact from fiction. And there's your truth and opinion and that. But again, 12 Angry Men really drives into the heart of that. And one thing that's interesting is that the 12 men, they're all white and they all appear to be very similar. And obviously they're all male. And so we think we've got 12 people from the same cut from the same cloth. But as the discussion unfolds, their cultural and social backgrounds come out, which just highlight just how different they all are. Here's what I think happened. How can you be positive about anything? I don't understand you people. I mean, all these picky little points you keep bringing up, they don't mean nothing. You are going to try a man for murder. The awesome power to kill will suddenly be thrust into your hands. Watch them and pray, for someday you may become one of them. Twelve men with the smell of violent death in their nostrils. What's the matter with you guys? You're letting them slip through our fingers. Slip through our fingers? Are you his executioner? You cut it. Ever since you walked into this room, you've been acting like a self-appointed public avenger. Shut up. You're a sadist. Twelve men turned into 12 clawing animals. And 12 Angry Men can be performed on stage, and it often is, uh, sometimes called The Jury, where some of the jurors are women. And there was actually a television remake in which four of the jurors were black, which would obviously change some of the dynamics and the themes, but keep those core elements. Um, 
I think the subject of it being a stage play, it is the case that many chamber pieces tend to show the link between theatre and cinema. And obviously performing arts started in theatre before moving through the invention of moving film. Um, I always think of whodunits when I think of chamber pieces primarily. The work of Agatha Christie plays such as The Mousetrap, The Unexpected Guest, a lot of the books. And then there were none. I think that's the most successful crime book ever written. I don't know if that's quite accurate, but it obviously has been made onto made into plays and several TV adaptations and film. Death on the Nile, Murder on the Orient Express. And then that expands beyond Christie to the likes of Gosford Park. More recently, we've had Bodies, Bodies, Bodies and Glass Onion. But the whodunit is almost quite rife for a chamber piece, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, it, it makes me, well, the first, whenever I think of a whodunit in chamber pieces, I'm, I'm not, I, I haven't really watched any of the Agatha Christie adaptations. I'm not a particular fan. Um, but I always think of Sleuth, the 1972 film, um, which stars Michael Caine as Milo Tyndall, um, who is a seeming ingenue, uh, but he's sharp-witted from a lower social status, um, who comes to the house of Laurence Olivier, who's playing Andrew Wyke. Andrew Wyke is a famous and successful author of detective novels. And Tyndall wants to take his, well, he wants Wyke to divorce his wife so that Tyndall can marry her. They've been having an affair. And Wyke seems fine with this. He and his wife have drifted apart and he's having an affair with another woman anyway. But then he starts getting a bit more sinister and uses the meeting and this request as a chance to play a game. And it's a game that has dark consequences. Uh, it's a really outstanding two-hounder that's a cat and mouse battle of wits between Wyke and, and Tyndall. Um, and it is maybe more a how done it than who done it, but it twists and turns and keeps you guessing all the way. And it does help that it's written by it's a brilliant screenplay by Anthony Schaefer, who wrote also wrote The Wicker Man. And the skill direction from Joseph L. Mankiewicz is just so highly polished and and clever um Mankiewicz this was his last feature film he directed all about Eve the classic Hollywood uh, film and few chamber pieces match the intelligence wit and tension of this film it was remade by Kenneth Branagh from Harold Pinter's screenplay in 2007 with Kane taking over Olivier's original role and Jude Law playing Tyndall and it's a good remake I think but the original version is much superior um and Olivier and Kane are great and it it shows what can be done with the chamber piece. And it reminds me of the French filmmaker Robert Bresson in his book Notes on the Cinematograph, where he, to quote him directly, referred to the terrible habit of theatre. And Bresson refers to film based on theatre as being just reproduction. So employing the resources of theatre like actors, even direction. But he described true filmmaking or the creative film as being cinematography. So it's very important to emphasize that's not the cameraman in terms of a cinematographer. The cinematography in Bresson's eyes is the creative film. And Bresson's idea is that this theatrical reproduction does not create anything. He said, there's no art without transformation and expression in the cinematography film comes from this relationship of images and sounds, not by a mimicry of gesture or intonations of voice. And Bresson felt the films that were truly cinematographic or creative were films that didn't analyze or explain, uh, that recompose uh, the idea of, 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 of what it means to tell a story from a stage. 
And I think Sleuth goes quite a long way to fulfilling many of, of these points that Bresson's come to. It does feel, despite its limited location, very cinematic in that it doesn't really analyse the behaviour of either character. There is an explanation, but there is a mystery preserved within. And I think that's very close to what Bresson is describing. And I think I think there's some really interesting and valid points there too when it comes to chamber pieces. One of the points I just want to pick up on, you said it's not really a who done it, but a why done it. Mm. And I um, often find that with... Sorry, how done it. With uh, And how done it. Yeah, I often find that with any Agatha Christie work. You go in, well, not just Agatha Christie, but also the other films I mentioned, Glass Onion and so forth. It's not just who did the crime, because that's usually the thing you find out right at the end. But if you go into something like The Mousetrap, and I know that's not been adapted for the screen as yet, I don't think it ever will be, although um, See How They Run, which is on Disney+, Plus, is well worth seeking out. Really entertaining film, that, but not a chamber piece. Anyway, I digress. It's all The who done it is kind of comes out at the end, but you go in blind, and you, the first question is who's going to be killed? Second is when they're going to be killed? How are they going to be killed? Why are they going to be killed and how is it all going to be revealed? So there's all these other questions and whodunit is just one element and perhaps in some respects the least interesting part of that uh, whole structure is whodunit, but all those other parts are, are perhaps the things that really get us gripped into the story. And that brings us into the work of someone like Alfred Hitchcock when he made Dial in for Murder, which is an adaptation of a stage play, something that Hitch makes very cinematic with his use of camera angles, but the roots are still in theatre um, the two of the actors reprised their Broadway roles. And I was thinking, why didn't Hitchcock adapt in Agatha Christie? Because we know Hitchcock does a lot of murder films and mystery films, but his films primarily aren't whodunits. They're suspense, they're mystery. And it dial in for murder right from the off, you know exactly what's going on. And then it's just how it all unfolds. You know that there's this guy that hires this other bloke to kill his wife, and then they're going to, to to pay her off so he can inherit the money. Fairly traditional sort of setup for a for that type of murder. It could be who done it if told in a different way, but the way that play and the film play out, it's more what's going to happen because there's the wrong man or the wrong woman in the case of Grace Kelly, who actually gets sent down for a murder that she has committed, although it was in self-defense and she doesn't realize there's this setup. And I think the closest link we can get to Christie and Hitchcock is with uh, the film, a perfect murder with Michael Douglas, Viggo Mortensen, and Gwyneth Paltrow, which is a remake of Dial M for Murder, um, which stars David Suchet as a detective. We know David Suchet is famous for playing Hercule Poirot uh, on television, certainly in the UK. I'm not sure how widely known, uh, widely seen that is in, in America and so forth. But there is obviously that link. But with Dial M for Murder, it is an adaptation of a stage play, as I mentioned. But it's just interesting how he tries to get it to escape from its theatrical trappings with the use of camera angles when the setup of the murder is discussed between the two men it goes abroad and we can it goes above an overhanging shot and we can see the whole plan being played out some films may have chosen to do a, a flash forward or an imagination of what might have happened but that it doesn't do that arguably that would be an easy option um, but the Hitchcock doesn't do that he just decides to keep it in real time uh, and most interestingly, he's only filming 3D and there are moments where he, you can see specific points so that the 3D would come out to the audience. And we're talking very old 3D, not the sort of high quality 3D we see with the likes of Avatar these days, but that old fashioned red and green glasses that gave people headaches. But again, an interesting idea of, of trying to 
keep it as a stage play, but at the same time making something that was a stage play into a film. Yeah, I think I think um, it's perhaps motive that is the most interesting thing for a viewer. We also maybe like, I think Hitchcock's very good at this. We like to relate to how we might act in those situations and where there's an extreme test of our character. How would we react? What would our, be our motives? And I think we try and relate it to that character's journey. So that's more important than the the uh, event if you like the 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 murder or the um uh the the big reveal i think the journey is always more important in a story um i think that's what hitchcock understood so well he's so good with those little details that keep you guessing and i think just going back to sleuth that's i feel like hitchcock could have made sleuth in many ways it's a film that's wonderful on those details and gorges on those details and i think again we come back to bresson's idea of the cinematography film and how hitchcock managed to uh, take very theatrical ideas and advance them um cinematically and yeah the films that do so much with so little i mean there are only four yeah. primary primary characters in Dialing for murder. There's the husband, the wife, the lover, and the detective. A couple of other minor characters as well. No, I've but never again, seen it. I've always it's wanted quite worth to watch it. Yeah, very enjoyable. Very, very slight film in in, in its running time, but quite um, very interesting and very entertaining. I mean, I first saw the play and then saw the film, so I was interested from that. But I think I saw the film after I'd seen A Perfect Murder, which expands it beyond the chamber piece and changes a few little elements. And I think it was quite a successful remake in many respects but what it does is it, it takes that setting and it does like we say try different camera angles uses a bit of 3d that you can't really see these days but is there nonetheless and trying to do so much with so little and again we come back to 12 angry men which does the same you know we said 12 people one location but the weather is initially very hot before it descends into a thunderstorm which is obviously very symbolic and the camera angles change and it becomes more intimate and wider. And every juror bar one takes their jacket off at some point throughout the, the film, which tells you something about that one juror's character and chamber pieces often have to do that, find creative ways to be creative. And if you think of a film like lock, which uh, I mentioned on our last podcast, it's just Tom Hardy having phone conversations on a car journey and that's it. And it's almost shot like a sci-fi you never really see the world around the car that he's in. We just see lights and glimpses and the odd indicator and some police cars, but nothing more than that. Locke almost drives an autopilot because the car is like a spaceship. He has a help for heroes wristband and tax disc holder, which suggests something, but we don't really know what it's suggesting. Uh, he wears a heavily knitted jumper. He has a straggly beard, which makes him appear like a naval officer captaining a ship. And it's all these little elements, costume design, cinematography, editing that make the creativity come alive and from a filmmaking perspective chamber pieces are an interesting creative challenge for all areas of filmmaking aren't they they are i would say lock is the one film where descriptions of mixing cement become genuinely nail-biting uh, it's, <laughs> it's a really um yeah it's a it's a brilliant example of a, of a chamber piece um I suppose when it comes to filmmaking the fundamental question is how you can you create something with genuinely cinematic text within a confined space or one location and uh escape that idea of theatrical mimicry that bresson spoke of um 
you don't have to be as, if you like, Calvinistic as, as Bresson, who use models instead of actors and stripped performance out. Uh, so it looks quite um, uh, well wooden, really. Um, but speaking as a filmmaker and one who operates with next to nothing budget wise, it is a challenge I enjoy. Um, the limitations of space and where to place the camera and sound teams, having enough space for props and to create a sense of depth in the lens and place in terms of production design. They're all too often compromise the ideas that you have as a director. And it is frustrating for the team as well, because they can't realize the full scope of the mise-en-scene and the ideas that we all have. Um, but nonetheless, I feel it's the details that make merit in a film and you work with what you have. And I always think, how can I work with the space that I've got? And it is a good challenge to take on because how can you help the actors' performances in that space? How can you help the image come alive? Um, is there a certain temperature in the location, a sound, um, a, a, a certain lighting? So where can the camera be placed to add interest? Are there interesting objects that a character can interact with? How can the dialogue be framed? Can you even speak it off camera? So what I think I'm getting at is preserving an enigma within a single location setting and keeping that the audience asking what is being told to me here because i think if the question continues to urge you to answer it the chamber piece will reward investment for the audience i think that writing a chamber piece is quite liberating in many respects because mm. you can do any genre we've mentioned two dunnets but you can do a horror or ghost story such as the others which is just um six characters seven characters in in one haunted house yeah. science or, fiction yeah i was, was going to say or um maybe a quite a little known british film i think exam have you seen exam from 2000 oh yeah 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 where eight all, candidates all going for a corporate exam. job have 80 minutes to answer one question and it all descends and into are, chaos <laughs> their uh, rules are there are there are some certain rules they're not allowed to write hmm. on the paper yeah i don't think they can uh, leave the room all this sort of thing allowed to leave the room um, yeah. And they're not allowed to talk to the guard, and they're not allowed to actually write on the paper. It's mm. quite, it's, uh, again, it's an interesting, just single idea and how it how it expands. And, and they don't even know what the question is, do they? Or do they? That's sort of part of the yeah. clever twist. But again, yeah, that's another interesting chamber piece and a low budget as well. I mentioned horror stories, science fiction. You can have something like The Thing, which again, sci-fi horror, just this one location. Await further instructions and more recent recent British sci-fi. Crime film, Reservoir Dogs, which isn't primarily a chamber piece because it does expand beyond that with flashbacks, but you could make it as just the one location of the warehouse. Panic Room, Rear Window, dramas such as Frozen, not the Disney one, or Fall. And it's a real example of how you can strip down a film. They're a great way of saving money. I think TV shows, in particular sitcoms, tend to do a lot of chamber pieces. Uh, think of going away from the big screen to the small screen, Friends used to do one episode of a series which was set entirely in one apartment. One of the reasons they would do it was because they wanted to save money and they just put all the six characters in the one apartment and then they'd have the three stories running throughout the what, 22 minutes of the of the sitcom. I think they're some of the funniest and best episodes um, because I think it's creates, presented a creative challenge to the writers. How can we have three stories and humour running throughout this uh, and make it work you do have an advantage with something like a sitcom because the characters and some of the backstory is already established so you don't need to waste time doing that but i think that was just another good example of of chamber pieces and 
I think a lot of the films that we've made, they have tended to be chamber pieces, haven't they? I mean, they are short films. But Chloe Daly, we shot that in lockdown. Barry was just two people, in not in a chamber, but in a queue. This is how, again, just one person, one shot. And it's something that we've really kind of embraced, perhaps unknowingly, as a way of making film with not much money. Yeah, I mean, I should point out all these films are written and directed by our producer, editor and outward founder, Matt Simmons. And I thought they were all really smart solutions to the one location problem, if you like, that limitation of space. Of course, <laughs> we've had to choose one locations more of necessity than um than desire but um i think we've all enjoyed because location changes are expensive budget wise um but i think we do all enjoy the challenge of what can we do um in one location and how can we make that uh, different and i think all three films that matt wrote and directed i think um he really found very inventive ways to um to to break out of those um those confines um and that they were all great fun to work on really good scripts and yeah uh great teams um and very different too um in many different ways and you can make them with fairly small crews and yeah. a fairly quick period well, we of time many, did we it was like three or four people including us <laughs> sometimes yeah and you can do them in a, in a short period and yeah, like you said, they're, they're, they're great fun to work. You just need a house, and that's pretty much it. I mean, I, I've written a couple of chamber pieces that haven't made it to screen. One was a romantic comedy, um, which I really like the setup of, but I found, I think the, the dialogue's very self-indulgent, so I might revisit that. Another was a horror film, just two people in a house, um, set over a period of three or four days, but the location never moves from the house. So that's another thing. And what I think is interesting is you can do anything when you make a chamber piece. Say, for example, you wanted to make a film about aliens invading and taking over the government. Just a random idea, probably not a great or original one that I had. But to film that and to make that, okay, right, so you're going to have aliens landing in London and going to the House of Parliament, you've got to shoot spaceships and everything like that. Well, you're never going to get to do that unless you've got big money and big production behind you. But what you can do is strip it right down. Just say, okay, that's the situation going on. And what we can do is just put a family in a house and see how they would react to it. In many ways, something like um, Night of the Living Dead is an example of that, where this whole sort of zombie yeah. apocalypse is going on around this house. And it's just how these individuals react. And it's um, a way you can tell your story uh, without having to resort to, to big budgets, should you so wish. So I think it's, if you think of something like Signs as well, which isn't exactly a chamber piece because it does expand beyond the farmhouse but the the best scenes in that are the ones in the basement and in the front room and the invasion that's going on is across the whole world um, but we don't see these big alien spaceships coming in we just see the effect it has on the family so it's a way of telling a story such as war of the worlds but just stripping it all down and that's something that is very creatively liberating with chamber pieces However, there can be problems when you make chamber pieces. I mean, one of the issues is escaping those theatrical trappings. Denzel Washington made a big screen adaptation of the film Fences, which had a lot going for it, but it did struggle to really get out of the theatre. And when you're watching it, you're thinking, this does feel like a stage, um, a stage play that's just been filmed. I mean, is that 
a regular occurrence and what can filmmakers do to escape from that? And Darlene for Murder does work on the small screen, but I wondered, would it be quite as effective if I'd seen it in the cinema? Even an effective concept can suffer from the limitations of one setting and scenario over a feature film running time. Uh, two examples I can think of, Danny Boyle's 127 Hours and... Rodrigo Cortez is buried, uh, both incidentally made in 2010, uh, in 127 hours where Aaron Ralston, a mountain climber, becomes trapped under a boulder while canyoneering alone in Utah. And he resorts to, shall we say, desperate measures um, to ensure his survival. And certainly at the point of the accident, it's intense and visceral. But overall, I just felt it got very, very stretched thin and didn't quite sustain all that all that runtime. Um, similarly, with Rodrigo Cortez is buried, um, as I said, also released in 2010, where Ryan Reynolds plays a US truck driver working in Iraq, and he's attacked by a group of insurgents and wakes up to find he's buried alive inside a coffin. It's set inside the coffin all through throughout, and he's only got a lighter and a cell phone. So he has this, the whole film's a race against time to escape his, well, suffocating to death, basically. It's yeah, as you can imagine, a very um, intense experience. Um, I do actually like that film a lot, but um, I like both of those films. To be fair, but I, I agree. Yeah, with I, 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 I think you know, with Buried though, it's you know, it's a guy in a box for ninety-five minutes, and there's just not enough to sustain that kind of length. And I could see both films working better as stage plays or short films. Um, and you think of Alien, even. Is I mean, it does go out onto the planet, but um, the original Alien from 1979 I'm referring to, but it does use a chamber piece structure. It's set mostly on the Nostromo, uh, the spaceship, and it, use, it, it manages to use that one location very effectively, although, of course, it's several locations across the ship, but there is the uh, the essence of the chamber piece about how it's it's done. And... Um, you can just do also do something wild and experimental like Lubin welded with the Exterminating Angel in 1962, um, which is just a bunch of upper class guests at a dinner party who find themselves unable to leave the party. And it's it's just an excuse of unwell to go completely surreal and um, all sorts of crazy things happen. And it is, again, preserving that mystery, preserving an enigma in the film. And Bunuel does that very, very brilliantly in all his films but i think in the, in the relation of the chamber piece the exterminating angels a great example of that what was that roman polanski film with jodie foster christopher carnage Fox? carnage yeah i mean there was much to i liked about that film but i did feel that the way it mm. kept the characters in the chamber did become quite contrived yes they just meet up for a very small thing and then oh do you want to have a coffee oh do you want to come back for some cobbler and it just goes back and forth and kate winslet as well is in it and obviously great performances as you would expect but mm. i did feel that the way it tried to trap them um it, it struggled to do so and with a film of that genre you couldn't sort of have a, a storm going on or something like that because it, it wouldn't work but there was that was an issue for me and it was some my main gripe with the film was that it just struggled to keep its film keep its characters believably in the same location for the duration um, and yeah. again it may have worked as a, as a shorter film well it was actually based on a stage play yasmina raises um le dieu de carnage which i think is the god of carnage and maybe it's too respectful of that source material but it does show the problem of never quite leaving the theatre, it's hard to buy in film because film 
presents the illusion of authenticity. I think there's more freedom of imagination on theatre. It's so obviously staged. <laughs> um, and you can see why Bresson was so keen to divorce the two mediums of art. Um, so in my opinion, I think cinematic and the cinematographic film, if we're going to refer to Bresson again, it means to create a world, an atmosphere that feels authentic in terms of being a relatable reality, whether that's in the real world or fantasy. And the theatre is a reproduction of the world. Um, so what you want to do is is to create something from, um, if you're going to create a chamber piece, you need to build a world around that one location. I mean, to give a, a fantastic example, I, I can't take the credit for this, but I read an argument for The Matrix being a chamber piece, which tickled me greatly. And this is a great reimagination of taking a single right. location and expanding it into a whole world. Yeah. I mean, cinema is quite expansive and that's sort of the mm. point of it. And I think yeah. when you adapt a play for the screen, there needs to be a purpose behind it. And in some cases, that can just be to take the play to a wider audience. I mean, I mentioned Fences. I never would have seen that if it had just been a play. And some plays only play in certain locations and they can be hard to, to get to view. So when they're made into a film, that means that more people can get to see them, which is the great wonder of cinema, really, and the great sort of shared experience that we have. Yeah. But there does need to be a point, you know, what can you do in a film that you haven't done on the pl on the stage a good example i think would be a few good men I mean, that's a one-act setting in the play but it expands really really well onto the film yes you can tell that it is a stage play at points certainly with the, the courtroom drama but the dialogue is so it fizzes it pops so well uh the the play with the interplay between jack nicholson and tom cruise um but i think that was a really good example of a film that moved from its origins and work well on film as well. I've never seen the play myself, but mm. obviously with Aaron Sorkin dialogue, you're always going to get <laughs> something that's worth watching, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think Richard, uh, well, Richard Donner took on Harold Pinter's The Caretaker. And I'm always surprised more people don't try and work with Pinter more in a cinematic setting, because I think he has that essential mystery in his work that could become so cinematic. And I think Donna does actually a really decent job of creating something cinematic from the stage play. There is a sense of environment. It doesn't totally get away from it feeling a bit staged, um, which is kind of maybe people not quite being able to work with Pinter's dialogue. But um, that, I think that's a pretty interesting example. I would actually like to see William Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist, I'd actually like to see his take on the birthday party, which he directed back in the seventies and see how he did it. Cause the birthday party is a fantastic play. It's really unsettling. And I would, I would very much like to see how that could work cinematically. I think there'd be potential there. And Friedkin ad adapted bug and killer mm. Joe, didn't he? Into, yes. Into yes. The cinema. Um, both fairly successfully. I, I found again, two chamber pieces that have just popped mm. into my head. I think you mentioned something about, um, you mentioned Buried and 127 Hours earlier. They're, I mean, 127 Hours is a true story, but they are films that have kind of one idea. And we've talked in the past about how films can be too long. And sometimes... And maybe that's the problem with both those films. They're just yeah. one idea, really. And to create this world, this expansive world that cinema does so well, you need a few ideas going on behind the central idea as well. But I, I would argue that 
to a point you don't if you're going to no, just okay. stick with that idea for a, a shorter period of time. But the problem is, if you're going to make a film for Ryan Re- with Ryan Reynolds in it and sell it to cinemas, you can't sell it as a 40-minute film. Yeah, so, so you're you saying it would work, it. like I said earlier, it'd work better as a short film, for example. Yeah, yeah, if you yeah, could, okay, if you could yeah, do yeah. that. But then yeah. would would they be nearly as successful? I mean, I think Barry did quite yeah, well. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Feature films aren't make. commercially um, driven. Um, short films aren't, so yeah. Uh, and I also think sometimes they can run out of ideas. I mean, a, a recent British film I've mentioned briefly is Await Further Instructions, which was on Netflix. I don't know if it still is. Essentially, it's about one family. They all gather for Christmas and they wake up on Christmas morning and the house is completely encased by this sort of steel shell. And there's a message on the TV that says Await Further Instructions. And it's a really interesting setup but then it just kind of runs out of ideas and it goes a bit crazy. It becomes a sci-fi body horror and it goes kind of mad towards the end. And I, I felt that was an example of a good idea, but it that idea didn't really know where to go. And I think with a many ways, a long chamber piece, the problem is that writer or a filmmaker will start at the beginning with their idea rather than starting at the end and then they'll need to try and find an ending if you can start at the end and come up with your idea and then build up to that then that primarily would be a more successful way to to make a chamber piece of that sort of genre i mean you, you've done you've done writing i mean till sunset your your first feature that kind of looked initially like a chamber piece mm-hmm. uh, it's not but uh the the concept was was three strangers wake in a wooded clearing with a shallow grave and they discover they have till sunset to fill it so i mean how did you sort of write that did you start at the end with that with that film uh and, and then build up to it or was did you come up with the concept first yeah i just i just worked from the original idea and um expanded it out that way really um i just uh yeah i, I well, I'm I'm assuming people would go away and watch it, so maybe it <laughs> maybe it doesn't matter if I spoil it. But um, yeah, um, I always saw it as being within the imagination of one of the main characters, and um, so I suppose from that point of view, it is a chamber piece. And really, I work on such low budgets. The first thing I have to do is go to the chamber piece because I need to contain my imagination, if you like, or at least contain that imagination to go wild in <laughs> a very limited space um so it was really just about thinking what locations i could get for free to um go into different areas of the character's imagination while also bringing it back to one very central location um and try and make it feel as expansive as possible without it costing very much which is something of a challenge. <laughs> it's interesting how you came up with that idea and then again you you strip it down to make it something that you can produce and get an end product with, which is what we were talking about with the whole idea of chamber pieces. You can have this brilliant expansive idea. I can't make that unless I've got millions of pounds and a big crew behind me and a big studio. So how can I do it? I'm going to have to strip it all down to something that I know I can make. I mean, I've got an idea for something originally wrote as uh, originally conceived as a screenplay, but I've now stripped it down to being told just from one character's perspective. And if I ever do get the chance to write it, it will just be done as a as a novel. But when I was of, I wrote a few pages of the screenplay, and it was very expansive, a lot of characters, a lot of locations, um, and I, it just never would have happened. So, but the way I've kind of come to 
realize it that it could actually be a finished product is to take it down make it a novel from one person the beauty of writing a, a book is just it only takes one person i always love the example of lord of the rings one person came up with lord of the rings and then how many millions of or thousands of people and millions of dollars did it take to make those films uh, and i just think if you can you can come up with your idea and then strip it right down that's ultimately how you can get things made in this world. Um, so that's yeah. what I find so interesting about the whole creative process around chamber pieces. And I think you've used Absolutely. a really good example there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I, I love, I love making them actually. Um, I think even if I were to ever be given a really substantial budget, um, well, apart from just appreciating it hugely, <laughs> I think it would be quite fun to make Um that kind of chamber piece, but with money. Um, we we think of uh, quite a, certainly a very well-respected chamber piece like My Dinner with Andre, um, which was directed by uh, the French director Louis Marley back in, oh, I think I think it might be in the 1970s. Uh, stars Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory. And it's just a, it's a discussion about art, life, relationships, philosophy between two friends over dinner. And... Um, they they obviously had a decent budget um I, I, <laughs> and it it's amazing how just having their security if you like of that money can just create such a simple space to do such a simple thing but to make it so warm and engaging and honest and of course you can hire really good actors like Sean uh, Gregory I think was a director uh, so they were sort of riffing on their r- real life personalities um, but it's it, it's just amazing how having what you would you would say well that, that's quite a lot of money just to shoot two guys having having dinner, um, but it, like I say it just it just gives that security for the actors to really express themselves and for the details to be evoked in a conversation and to create an intimacy and warmth you know you can invest more in how you like things and of course the 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 location you can have this very flush restaurant and i don't know if it was actually a film set or if it was on location but um i think it's um an arena of detail I suppose just just going back to to one of the points you mentioned about casting and we talked about sort of ryan reynolds in buried i suppose the inverse of stripping something down in order to get it made is if if you are a established filmmaker or you've got a bit of clout behind you, you can write a chamber piece and then get an A-lister in to, or someone well-known to get the film funded. You can use the money you do have to pay them. And then that can get the film promoted and and get it sold and, and make it profitable. I mean, we mentioned Locke, uh, with with Tom Hardy and Carnage, which has Oscar-winning A-list actors, and obviously Ryan Reynolds in Buried, so it's almost that's almost the inverse. I haven't got money, so I'm going to strip everything down to make a chamber piece, or I want to make a chamber piece. How can I get it funded? I'm going to get an A-lister or a big name in, um, because I can do that, and uh, that that will help with getting funding for it and and getting it made, and and also make it particularly profitable i mean you know, we thought these films are made for one million two million which is way more than, than we work with but mm-hmm. they do then make six or seven million so they're, they're worthy investments for the powers that be behind them yeah and i think really good for the actors too because they get to own the screen for 
the entire runtime nearly, um, if if not all in the case of Reynolds. So um, I think there's a huge appeal for an actor. Um, yeah. And even with Locke, just the voice casting, I mean, Olivia Colman yeah. is one of the voices um, and there's some, some established names playing playing those parts that you never see on screen. Two interesting ways of looking at it. Now we do like to end these uh, these pods with recommendations. So obviously we've gone for recommendations of chamber pieces, three each. I'm going to go first. And my first one is Alfred Hitchcock's Lifeboat from 1944. It's a lesser known Hitchcock that actually lost money at the box office. Uh, it's something of a hidden gem. Interestingly, it's a World War II film that was actually made during the war in uh, 43 and then released in 44. It opens with the aftermath of a passenger line sinking, having been torpedoed by a Nazi U-boat. A few of the survivors gather in the titular lifeboat, and these include a crewman from the U-boat itself. Initially, the situation is a great leveller. The first two characters we meet are a first-class passenger and a worker from the engine room covered in oil. So everyone's suddenly, no pun intended, but in the same boat, and there's no sort of structure to it. But as the story unfolds, just structure appears, the dynamic shift of the various moral conflicts come into play as trust is gained and lost along the way. Now, Hitchcock makes the confined setting feel even more claustrophobic by keeping the camera largely in the boat itself. We don't get too many wide shots of the boat uh, in the North Atlantic, especially during a storm sequence as well. It's a really interesting film when you assess Hitchcock's career, and it was the first feature of his that was a chamber piece, and you can see him really honing the skills that would eventually be used in more widely known films. Um, a film that a certain Mr. Woods got me for Christmas a few years ago. It's on the Criterion Collection on Blu-ray and well worth seeking out. So that's Alfred Hitchcock's Lifeboat. Well, it was a pleasure to buy it for you, Phil. Very, very, very welcome and a wonderful addition to my collection. What's your first recommendation? I could not look anywhere else other than Hitchcock's Rope from 1948. Um, this is my absolute favorite chamber piece and i first watched the film i think it's my favorite hitchcock that i think Ray's my favorite hitchcock yeah it's close to being mine i'd I'd probably put rear window at vertigo above it but it it would easily be it'd be easily be third i think um i just love it um i watched it for the first time when i think i was in my early 20s and it still remains among as i say my very favorite hitchcocks this day um it's about two men, played by John Dahl and Folly Granger, who attempt to prove they committed the perfect crime by hosting a dinner party after strangling their former classmate to death. Uh, it's set entirely within their flat, and we see the party unfold, and people come closer and closer to maybe working out what they've done, and they invite their favourite professor, Rupert Cadle, who's played by the always brilliant James Stewart, and they're very eager to see if he can deduce this crime, and they suspect um, he would favour their rejection of moral codes and um, societal expectations. Um, I won't spoil how that goes, but um, the film is shot in real time. And I I believe it was just 10 shots in total that were required to complete rope. And each scene ran for the full length of film reel, which was 10 minutes. Uh, To counteract these necessary cuts, whenever the reel needed changing, the cameraman would close in on blank surfaces, beginning the next reel with an identical shot, thus imitating continuity. I mean, the dolly work in Rope is where the camera's placed on a track to create a smooth movement. It's just outstanding. It's voyeuristic and intimate, and the freedom the actors have to ensure continuity of performance is very evident. The script is challenging, it's disturbing, and I, I think it just asks so many fascinating questions that have fascinated us since time immemorial. 
And the film was considered experimental and audacious at the time of its release. As I mentioned, it's not, it was released in 1948, but it still provokes, captivates and delights in 2023. And as a side note, it was also Hitchcock's first colour film. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, genuinely. apparently so. Um, yeah, yeah, apparently so. Absolutely, and again, an adaptation of a stage play. But um, yes, yeah, yes. really, really, really brilliant film. I did write a piece. It's called "Cutting the Edit: The Science and Art of the Unbroken Shot," um, which I think is still available on the fan carpet website. Oh. But the thing with the thing with the rope is those long takes. It, it almost becomes quite meta because they get towards the end of the takes, and the actors would be quite concerned that if they drop a line they'd have to go right the way back to the start because you couldn't cover it up in the way you can these days. So yeah, I mean, I even heard a, I think one of the camera team um, had his foot broken by the, the dolly going over his foot or something like that. And um, yeah, they had to carry on filming. <laughs> he was in agony, he had to go off set and everything. Um, the, the, you know, props were dropped, people had to go on, you know, pretend it hadn't happened, all sorts. But the tension within the structure of the story... Well, it it's helps, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. The structure, the the tension was really there for the actors because you know they're all getting quite. You can see them getting sweaty because they're like, I really, I mustn't mess up because if I drop my line now, then that's going to ruin it for everybody, and we're going to everything we've just shot is going to be completely wasted. I mean, yeah. nowadays we have. There's something very shots. real in that. Yeah. It's not just mimicry, as you know, mm. as as Bresson alluded to when you're adapting theatre directly. It's too much like mimicry, but there's actually something real in that. There's mm. something real the in way, that tension. Plus the way Hitchcock hides the cuts as well, which is just, uh, just wonderful. I mean, these days you can make a, a film where the cuts are less obvious. They're still kind of hidden. But I think of 1917 or Birdman, which are both Birdman's one take yeah. 1917. Sam Mendes' film is, I think, deliberately supposed to look like two, but it's obviously a lot more than that. And as brilliant as both those films are, it's not quite as clever as the way they do it with rope. Um, and obviously we do have films like Russian Ark, which is remarkable the way that that's done in, in just the one take. That's a, again, I guess, I guess. An, yeah, I've seen the behind the scenes on, I own yeah. a DVD of Russian Ark and there's a behind the scenes where the cinematographer, when he comes, because I think that, I think it was actually a second or third take they did. They only did two or three takes. And at not the end, rehearsing. when he finished, yeah, exactly. There was tons. Um, and when he finishes the, the take that was printed and released, he just collapses to his knees. <laughs> he's just yeah. dead. You know, he's absolutely exhausted. He gets hugs off everyone. It's it's an incredible achievement, especially considering the the grandeur and splendor that you see in in Russian arc. It's really quite a um, a movement. It, it does feel operatic in that sense. Mm. Wonderful film, and I, mm. we haven't really talked about Rear Window either. I mean, that's another kind yeah. of chamber piece, isn't it? With uh, well, it you've is. got this one small setting and then this expansive world of the apartment blocking and what yeah. again not to who done it but how's it going to play out but mm. you you lock your character i mean the confines of the room are even more stricter because of jimmy stewart being having his leg in plaster so he can't even yeah. really move from his wheelchair yeah so it's, it's i'm going to make a chamber piece and then i'm going to strip it down even further yeah, it's a chamber piece within a chamber piece, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> and then the, uh, the, it was remade. I don't know there was a court case as to whether it was a remake as, as Disturbia with, with um, I think it was Sheila Booth, and he's got a tag, so he yeah. can't leave his apartment because of that, um, which is, again, not quite as restrictive, but still 
that sort of idea. So, I mean, yeah, Hitchcock and chamber pieces, they seem to go hand in hand. Don't they? I mean, mm. So many, many of his, his great films, as, as we've mentioned, but Absolutely. moving on, um, my second recommendation is uh, the party, which is Sally Potter's 2017 social satire. It boasts a small cast of Patricia Clarkson, Bruno Ganz, Cherry Jones, Emily Mortimer, Killian Murphy, Kristen Scott Thomas, and, Timothy Spall. Uh, it's shot in black and white and it lasts just 71 minutes. So again, an idea of a film taking its idea and just running with it and then not trying to overexpand it. it Tackle subjects such as religion, politics, and all the characters gather at Janet, um, played by Scott Thomas's house, for a celebration as she is named the Shadow Health Minister. Things don't go to plan, obviously, uh, in what is a smart and blackly comic film boasting an original idea as I said, never overstretched itself. Uh, it wasn't widely received, but it was well received. Um, sorry, not widely seen, but well received. And also a film which the cast all paid the same to highlight the equal pay within the film industry. And it's got Bruno Gantz, the late great Bruno Gantz, who famously played Hitler in Downfall, saying the line, I'm not a Nazi. Um, well worth seeking out. Uh, I, I bring it to people's attention because I don't think too many people saw it. But Sally Potter's 2017 The Party is my second recommendation. That's great to hear. Yeah, it's great to hear the party gain a shout out. I got a lot. I I very much agree with you, and I got a lot out of that film as well. Um, what a great really, final shot as well. Mm, yeah, and um, oh, it's just such good interplay between the characters throughout. It's, yeah, it's definitely well worth checking out. Um, it's well, really a social satire. You wouldn't think that would work as a chamber piece, but um, no, uh, but yeah, it's it's amazing how many genres it crosses over into, isn't it? And uh, subgenres. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, great shout. So uh, my second pick is Vincenzo Natale's 1997 sci-fi come horror Cube, uh, which features six different people from very different walks of life. And they wake in a giant cube (laughs) with thousands of possible rooms to enter. Um, But they don't know who's put them there and they don't know how to get out. And I, I, it's quite well known for being a low budget movie. I, I believe the total budget was something like three hundred and fifty thousand Canadian dollars, which is about two hundred thousand pounds in our currency. Um, it's got a visceral tension, and that Natalie is so good at executing, and the traps genuinely have you on the edge of your seat. You are just fascinated by what each cube contains as they move between the rooms. Um, the group discover they all have these specialist skills that can potentially break clues or the code behind the mysterious cube in the different rooms and lead to their eventual escape. Uh, some of the acting is raw and the script does slip into cliche at points, um, but the unfolding scenario has some great twists and turns and the film manages to draw a conclusion of, of a kind that preserves the mystery behind it all. I I always feel this movie has a place in my shall we say, midnight movie collection. Um, I still get a kick out of it 20 years after first seeing it. Should should that actually be called a Chambers piece if there's more than one room? <laughs> yeah, I like that. Just thought, yeah, I, I do remember seeing Cube. Yeah, real kind of interesting visceral film. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite a cult film. hit really these days and um, there's a lot of love for it and out there and uh, I think well-deserved too. 
Excellent. My final recommendation is The Hateful Eight. Now, my relationship with Tarantino is complicated. I won't get into that now. I think that's a whole other podcast. But The Hateful Eight is one of my favourites of his films. Um, and the highlight of his recent work as a group of lawmakers and criminals converge on Minnie's haberdashery during a snowstorm. Ambiguity surrounds all the characters in what Tarantino described as Reservoir Dogs meets the thing. There is therefore a slight air of self-indulgence as Tarantino is using his own film as a touch point. But I found the Hateful Eight to be entertaining and involving, especially the multiple twists and the way that they're revealed. Tim Roth inversing his Reservoir Dogs character was a personal favourite, especially as I felt initially he was hamming things up and then I got the twist and I understood why. The confined setting I think is quite key because it gives tarantino a discipline that i often find lacking in much of his later work and some of his earlier work as well all the characters and the plot have an overarching arc to them and often we, he's been meandering and he's done too much and he's put in scenes that didn't need to be there certainly with things like once upon a time in hollywood which i didn't care for but i think that just putting his characters in one place really really worked and it just meant that there was only so much he could do with it and to that point, he had to be quite disciplined with it. And that is why I think it's such a good film. I mean, I watched this with you, Dave, in the cinema. And we were both a little surprised by just how much we liked it. I remember when it finished, I, I turned to you and said, what did you think of that? And you said, I really enjoyed that. I said, yeah, I did too. And I think that's, in some respects, down to our slightly dampened expectations of Tarantino. But it also yeah. highlights just what a good writer and a filmmaker he can be. And I would put this probably third in my, in my Tarantino list um, behind Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. And that's The Hateful Eight, which I, I really, really think is a terrific film. And perhaps somewhat underrated in the canon because people tend to talk more about Kill Bill and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which Kill Bill I like, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I don't have a lot of time for. And I think this is really really good really entertaining and really well performed as well yeah i i enjoyed it i i think it is too long and there's one or two tarantino things that do get on my nerves in the film but yeah after i i wasn't a fan of django unchained or um inglorious bastards so uh, hateful eight came after those two i i think it was after django and um yeah i was just not expecting to like it but yeah it it, it really did surprise me i just wish it was a bit shorter <laughs> but i think it does end on the perfect note i remember that that final shot you remember you think yeah it's now and now and then it does and there was almost the worry that it would just continue after that final shot which it didn't need to do and yes it could be trimmed down of course it could um as is the case with tarantino he kind of can do what he likes because of the amount of money that he's he's made with his films but i do think it it, it, it does have a bit more discipline um, that is often lacking um, and plus I just really enjoy it and I love I love the performances I love the characters and I love the setting what's your uh, final recommendation okay so my third and final recommendation would be Michael Haneke's Funny Games uh, which he did an original version in his native Austria in 1997 and then remade it in America with Naomi Watts and Tim Roth speaking of Tim Roth uh, in 2007 and this is just set entirely in a country holiday home where two young men take a family hostage and force them into this sadistic uh, persecution uh, for, for just for their own amusement. Now, Funny Games goes onto a very specific list of films that, and a, certainly a very select list of films that impacted me fundamentally 
as a film fan. So I think of things like when I was six, I saw Star Wars A New Hope and the shot of the Star Destroyer going over the camera at the beginning just blew my mind. Um, created a lifelong love affair with, with the original trilogy. Uh, Jurassic Park, which... Um, I saw as a quite a young, I think I was about 13 or something or 12 and it terrified me and um, it really redefined the um, impact that an event movie could have on me. The Seventh Seal by Ingmar Bergman. I just saw it at 17, I think, and I or 19 and I just didn't know movies could be made that, that way and it, it just blew my mind again and deconstructing Harry Woody Allen's film from the mid-90s that changed my view on... Uh, answering different difficult questions about life in in cinema and um, doing it in a humorous way and all these films changed my view in general on what film could achieve and funny games goes on that list i remember watching the american remake at first um i do prefer the austrian one but the american remake well it's just the same but i got through a bottle of whiskey watching it <laughs> and um i was genuinely watching it open mouthed I just couldn't take my eyes. I was glued to the screen. I couldn't take my eyes off it. It's it's a satire on Hollywood movie violence, ultimately. And I think Haneke did want to film it in America and um, was frustrated he couldn't. But um, it's cold, exacting, and does not spare the viewer in any way from both questioning your fascination with what you're witnessing and also what you would do if you could intervene in the events. And Haneke's directorial style is very observational and he has a very steely eye and he's unapologetically unsentimental therefore this becomes a deeply unsettling experience and while i do appreciate the satire might be a bit lofty for some tastes i think it does make its point effectively and the incorporation of what i'll call home video viewing maybe to avoid too many spoilers is spectacular uh, it's not a pleasant film or one i could watch regularly but i do own it for its influence and impact on me it's a significant viewing in my film history and one that not only makes the chamber piece cinematic it reverses the cinematic blueprint onto the viewer by the viewer creates the scenario and in a sense the conclusion and on the subject of that film do check out episode four of film by numbers which is the fourth wall in which we talk about that film and other films which break the proverbial fourth wall That brings us to the end of episode 12 of Film by Numbers. Thanks for downloading. We hope you've enjoyed. As I mentioned at the start, you can search Outward on Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. And our website is outwardfilmnetwork.com. And our feature film, the first feature made under the Outward banner, Night Lens, is available on Amazon in the UK. So do watch that if you get the chance. We'd love to hear your feedback and any ideas you have for future episodes linked to numbers. So do let us know your suggestions. Next up, we're going to be having an assault on episode 13. Thanks for listening.